Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is with Adam Hay Nichols, a hugely charismatic journalist that spent around 10 years in the F1 paddock before taking a break. He's actually back in it soon as he'll be heading out for the Dutch Grand Prix and possibly Austin later in the year too. He started his career around the same time as me, 2005. And for those who have been around the sport long enough, you might remember the Red Bulletin magazine, which appeared on coffee tables up and down the paddock. Much of that was Adam's doing. He joined us from his home remotely. We tend not to do face-to-face -face interviews so much at the moment, but it's something I do want to get back into. And we spoke about his life in journalism. He told us the motivation behind his new book, The Charles Leclerc Biography, which you can buy everywhere. He painstakingly researched and wrote that all by himself. We also talk about his near miss with a Russian missile. He's just returned from driving an ambulance to the front line in Ukraine. Fair play to him for that. Something many of us have probably thought about, but few have acted upon. I hope you all enjoy hearing from Adam. And before we start, a massive thank you as always to our show sponsor, Paul Oz. Head to pauloz.com to see his amazing works of art. We've actually just given away one of his Senna paintings and original to a lucky competition winner on social media. Well, we're, we're trying to give it away. We've emailed you, Joanne. Please email us back. If we don't hear from you, we'll have to move on to somebody else. Right. Enough of this. Let's head over and hear from Adam. Enjoy the show. Adam, great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Now, our paths have crossed a few times over the years, although we've never really got to know one, one another properly until we had a chat recently at the Williams Racing the Golf Oil event, um, which led to this, incidentally. Um, but we go back. Our, our paths do cross. And, and my, my um, start in Formula One was 2005 when I was working with Toyota Panasonic Racing with Richard Cregan and um, Badansky Sponsorship Limited and then went on to do a few bits and pieces with Kingfisher and VJ Malia and his famous yacht parties and you were around at this point weren't you? you you were you were often on those yacht parties right yeah that was um very much the golden years I think of um parties or at least you know 
posts of uh, you know 1970s parties. Um, yeah, it was it was a good time to be around. Um, yeah, I started in 2005 as well um, with Red Bull. Um, I was making a magazine for them. Well, um, you know, I was a staff writer on a magazine called uh, the Red Bulletin, um, which was um, which was a really cool magazine. It was um, quite irreverent, and it was um, published, believe it or not, four times a weekend. Um, and um, we covered all sorts of gossip around the, the paddock and features and things like that. I was sort of their news hand, hound, and I was also, you know, kind of the party reporter as well, I suppose, in some ways. So, um, yeah, I was at all of those yacht parties. I was out every night. I, I, don't, I honestly don't know how I did it. I couldn't do it now. I mean, I was out until sort of 2, 3 in the morning, and then I'd have to be back at the track at 7 a.m. I mean, it was ridiculous, really. And th- those yacht parties were mental. I, I mean, I don't remember it terribly well either. I, they, they were they were quite messy evenings and there was a lot of interesting people on those boats. Just paint a picture for us of what what those parties look like because they don't happen anymore. Those sorts of parties, I, mean, I, I know we have yacht parties and stuff at places like Abu Dhabi and Monaco, but those VJ Malia parties were something else, weren't they? Just paint a picture for us what it was like to be on one of those boats. Well, so the boat was called the Indian Empress. As I recall, it was 95 metres long, which is big. And um, they uh, basically VJ and Force India invited everyone, like everybody in the paddock. I mean, quite a lot of the time with these parties, you know, it's a guest list thing and it's you know, sometimes a bit tricky to get an invite, whatever. They literally invited two and a half thousand people. And um, and you got had everybody on, on it, everything, uh, you know, Everybody from the paddock and, you know, usually, you know, a sort of harem of pretty girls. And um, you'd always have to, I mean, it, it's, with yachts, you always have to take your shoes off, right? And inevitably, somebody would break a glass. And so inevitably, you ended up with glass in your feet. And I remember <laughs> finding myself covered in Flavio Briatore's blood because he stepped in a glass <laughs> and was padding around the place. I mean, it was very strange. And then, you know, the, the, the sorts of people that you get on it were just bizarre. You know, I mean, I remember being sort of by the bar with Cliff Richard and I think um, Philip Green. Um, and then, yeah, and then like uh, Bollywood's answer to Natalie Portman. I mean, it was just a very strange setup, but great fun. And um, I was always a last leave. Gone, gone are those days, I think. At least I'm not invited to any of that stuff. Yeah. No one goes to the races anymore. It's all remote. And I, I definitely think VJ Malia doesn't go to the, all that many races anymore. That is... No, no it goes no. anywhere anymore. That is... It's like another life, almost, uh, in terms of you know, the way you look at Formula One on a grand scheme of things. Because, I, I mean, I, I know there are still, especially Monaco, places like that. You know, they do have the boat parties and they have the yachts and Miami with the fake harbour and all of that. But it, it doesn't seem prevalent anymore maybe it's just being hidden a bit well but- it's always been hidden. it's always been hidden i mean the thing is that um you know i mean i've um i've written pieces before about you know um i, don't, I did i did a piece once about uh, basically uh the theme of the article was uh do formula one drivers have as much sex now as they did in the 70s and the answer is yes uh, <laughs> and the parties are, are pretty wild but it's all behind closed doors and you don't really get to see it and um, I mean, I don't know. I haven't really been um, around the paddock so much in the last few years. And obviously, Formula One's got much bigger in terms of the audience. Um, now, whether it's got any sort of more, because I mean, you know, it's very corporate, right? But, um, 
you know, the, 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 you know, these, you know, can still be pretty wild. So, um, I, I mean, you know, I imagine it sort of still goes on. I mean, it's quite weird, you know. I mean, as we said, you know, like if the Me Too thing ever, you know, catches up with Formula One, I'm surprised it hasn't. Then, you know, a few people are in for, um, you know, a bit of trouble. But, um, you know, when they, those, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the, um, um, uh, what's his name, the Jeffrey Epstein, um, yeah, Jeffrey Epstein and, and Ghislaine Maxwell and all the rest of it, and the woman who, well, the girl who was, you know, um, has accused Prince Andrew of, um, you know, lying and all the rest of it. I mean, she was on one of these yachts. There are pictures of her on this yacht with Eddie Jordan and Flavio Briatore, and I'm amazed that it's never caught up with Formula One, but there you go. Well, I, I think there's another there's another podcast in this somewhere, isn't there? Probably is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, and and I mean, I don't know. I don't really know. That I want to be the one to break the story, but I mean, my goodness, you know, some stuff went on, and um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, I want to delve into that, but I also don't want to delve into that. Um, look, what? Yeah. What well, we should probably we should probably consult the lawyers first. Yes, but, um, I would but, yeah, say so. Let's, yeah. Let's <laughs> in the, which yeah, case, yeah. Um, while we consult the lawyers, uh, what, what mm. just b- before we, we dive into it though, what so what are you doing sort of uh, at the moment? What, what the day to day? How would you sort of describe what you do to somebody who didn't, who didn't know what you did? Yeah. Um, so I mean, I'm a journalist. Um, I just write. You know, I don't do podcasts. I don't do TV. I'm just a, a, a writer uh, and a, a freelancer and. Um, I've been a lifelong fan of Formula One and, um, you know, desperately wanted to work in Formula One as a teenager um, and was very focused on that. And I was in the paddock for 10 years. Um, but, you know, I have other interests as well. And um, I've also, yeah, I'm massively into road cars. Um, and I sort of made the, a decision, you know, around like sort of 2015 or something to slightly pivot and still do my column in the Metro, but go to fewer races and do more reviews of um, fancy cars. So I do that as well, and I do a few other things. Um, you know, I do quite a lot of uh, luxury travel writing and adventure type stuff. And um, yeah, and then and then I just got back from Ukraine, where I was driving an ambulance to the front line for a couple of features for uh, one for Rolling Stone magazine, one for Airmail. Wow, uh, which was a bit different, um, but really, actually, amazing experience. I absolutely loved it. Um, and uh, I feel very privileged actually to have um, had the chance to go and see what's happening behind there. So I'm still quite buzzing from that, to be honest. I bet, yeah. So so t- talk us through that a little bit. I mean, w- we spoke a couple of weeks ago when we were trying to arrange a date for this, and you said, um, you said yeah, we'd love to come on. I've just got the small matter of popping across to the Ukraine to sort out, you know, pretty <laughs> pretty casually. You, you went there. You Well, I told a few people before I went so that I was basically committing myself <laughs> and then I couldn't sort of pull out. Um, so I thought, yeah, if I tell a few people, then um, then there's no, there's no pulling out of it. I have to go. So I did. Um, it was absolutely amazing. It was so cool. You have to go. What what was it? What was it like? How how can you describe that experience of going to the front line, seeing it all happening with your own eyes? I mean, it must have been a a fairly life changing experience in a way. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing from sort of the beginning was, you know, I I, I flew to Poland, and um, you know, it was all done by these sort of encrypted apps because you know the russians might be uh be tracking you so um you know it's this i, I met up with this chap that i never met before called sergey and uh <laughs> and he sorted out me, me out with this ambulance and off i drove a thousand miles across ukraine and then when i got there yeah i mean um how, sorry how did was, you get there started, like did you take a flight to yeah. poland or, or and then yeah, drive? So I, 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 flew, I flew ryanair to a place called uh i can never pronounce this right Zhuzhou. uh-huh 
that's not how it's spelled, but that apparently is how it's pronounced, which is the closest airport to the Ukrainian border because you can't fly to Ukraine yeah. um, because uh, it's just the military. Uh, anyway, so um, so basically I got there, I got a cab to the border, I've walked across the border and there was Sergei and he gave me the keys to this ambulance and off I drove. Wow. And um, are you are you on your own at this point? Are you are you is so Sergey's passed you the keys? Is yeah. he like right? Here's 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 a map off your trot. No, so so basically Sergey sat in the passenger seat to Kiev, and then I stayed stayed the night in Kiev in a in a hotel that was Egyptian themed. Like imagine Abu Simbel meets nice. Forty Towers. Very strange. And um, hmm. and then um, Sergey arrived the next morning with another ambulance. These these ambulances are cool, right? They're, they're Toyota Land Cruisers, like eighty spec, but new. And they have the passenger um, treatment bay in the back and all the rest of it. Bull bars, winch, huge tires, massive shock absorbers. And um, so uh, he and I and um, uh, uh, another contact of mine out there drove three ambulances, hundred miles an hour, all these miles to the front line. Uh, where we um, sort of basically stayed in a field hospital and um, and watched as they did surgery on um, you know really really badly um, injured soldiers. Um, it was incredible. What what are the scenes like in in Kiev and the places you drove through Ukraine? You know, is it is it all a bomb site? No. So so basically, um, so where the front line is, which is always changing, obviously. So I think like like the artillery range. It's about 20 miles, but obviously they can send cruise missiles much, much, much further. So around the sort of front line, it's pretty serious, and you've got clouds of, um, well, clouds from explosives going off and all the rest of it. Everybody's wearing um, flak jackets. Um, pretty much everybody's in fatigues. Um, but then when you go about an hour behind the front line to some of the cities, Zaporizhia and uh, Dnipro, which were two of the ones that I was in, it's complete, life is completely normal. Yes, there are. Um, apartment buildings that have been blown up, um, but everything's open. You know, I, I went to this amazing restaurant. I had the most fantastic eel tartare and a lovely Ukrainian chardonnay. It was delicious. Ooh. It's all going on. It's all absolutely completely normal. But um, but also, um, you go to the supermarket. Everything's in the supermarket, including bulletproof jackets. And um, I went into one. And I was invited. Um, there was a there was um, a T-shirt with Vladimir Putin's face on it, and I was invited to wipe my boots on it. <laughs> it's um, it's pretty pretty amazing what's going on. But I mean, they are um, tough, brave, determined, and they're getting on with life as 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 as, as normally as they can. Um, but it's going to be a long war, you know, and it's been going on for eighteen months already. Adam, what what was the motivation for going out there? Um, I think it's just one of those things that I. I mean, you know, I, I, I think it was like an itch I sort of needed to scratch and that I, I wanted to go to a war zone and sort of see it with my own eyes. And particularly this war, which is um, which is a war that the likes of which we haven't seen for a long time because you've got, you know, two sides with very modern weaponry um, and, and um, you know, a similar mindset. But, um, yeah, I, I just um, I wanted an adventure, really. Um, and, um, and this opportunity came up, which I thought was... Uh, a good opportunity to do something a bit different, meet some interesting people, um, write about it for some interesting publications and, um, and, you know, hopefully shine a little bit of a light on some of the things that are going on there. Cause I don't think, um, the organization, which I went out with, they haven't really been covered yet and they're very interesting. So, um, so that's, yeah, that's why I did it. Uh, the organization was called MOAS. It's a humanitarian organization. 
Okay, well, well, we'll chuck the links to that in the, in the podcast description. I mean, fair play to you. I mean, not an easy thing to do, you know, scary. So, you know, well done. Very, very impressive. Um, one thing that we did want to touch on, um, you know, outside of your, your writing in, in the Metro and all the other things that you do, you've also written a book, um, the, the Charles Leclerc biography, I guess, Again, what's the motivation for the book and, and why that driver in particular? So I've written um, um, quite a few books. I don't know how many, seven or eight um, coffee table books, and they've all been um, mostly pictures. So this was the first book that I've done, which is basically all words, um, which was um, a challenge. And I really enjoyed doing it. Um, a lot of research went into it. And um, the reason I ch- decided to tell Charles' story, apart from the fact that he's a very talented racing driver and obviously... You know, racing for Ferrari brings a certain, you know, romance and glamour to all that, you know. Um, I think part of the reason I wanted to do it is because he's a bit different to some other drivers. A lot of drivers arrive in Formula One basically having no hardship. Um, I mean, there are a handful of drivers who get there on the basis of completely their own talent and don't come from money. Lewis Hamilton being an example. Um, Sebastian Vettel being an example as well. Um, and Kimi Raikkonen. Um, but Charles has actually experienced hardship in the form of the fact that his father died when he was young. Uh, Jules Bianchi was his best friend and his godfather died, um, you know, um, from injuries that he sustained at the Japanese Grand Prix in 2014. Um, and, um, so he's had that sort of, um, unusual, um, grounding. I think that his, um, he has this inner steel that's been forged in grief and, um, you remember when he won his first Grand Prix in 2019 at the Belgian Grand Prix, and that was the day after his very good friend Antoine Hubert had been killed. So, you know, go out, respond in that way and drive the race of his life and win his first race was a hell of a sporting achievement. So I sort of sat up um, and took notice, I think, really at that point. I thought, this this kid's a bit different. You know, he's a, he's a gentleman. He's sort of quite old school in that regard, I think. Um, and, um, but he has this, uh, this toughness, um, which I think is rare. There's no, they, he's not a spoiled kid like some of them. This, this, this kid is, a, is, um, is a bit of a tough nut. And I suppose in some ways I identified with him because my father died when I was young and I, I felt that, um, he had a sort of connection in that way. And, and so I thought, well, maybe I'm the man to tell the story. I, I remember, was it, um, 2017 for Charlotte in Baku and he won the race, the day after or the week of I believe it was that, that his father died and and just sort of that you're right that inner steel is, is such a good way of of describing what you can what you can develop from that yeah it was about four days after his father died and um you know yeah. you can, and, and I just think it's so you know not many people could do that he takes these sort of because he's very emotional I mean he's, he's composed but he can be very emotional um as we've seen on a number of occasions and you know, mm. he takes this raw emotion and with sort of furious alchemy, you can turn it into speed. Um, yeah, he's... Um, do do he, you think that, um, Charles, do you think Charles is is living the career of of what Jules would have gone on to do? Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, that seat was, was that was the plan. Um, and yes, he has. And I think that he, he feels that, um, but it's not a weight on his shoulders. He, he sort of feeds off it. I think that's a big part of his motivation. I mean, it's it's a powerful story. You're quite right, and actually, on the face of it, you you, you know, you wouldn't actually straight away think he's he hasn't 
you know, he's, he hasn't got to Formula One without any any hardship. But then all you have to do is peel back that one layer and you actually do see all, all of those things. And, and you're quite right. I mean, you've had experience with it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure if you haven't had an experience with grief, then you're very lucky. Everyone goes through it at some stage. I lost my mum when I was 21 years old. So sort of I get, kind of know sort of the, the rough the rough of it and how that can sort of form your mindset and change your mindset. Um, how... I suppose what's the what's the plan with, with with the book? Is there a plan? Is it you you know how can we get it? Where is it? How can we buy it? Well, very easy. Um, I think it's on sale um, most places. Um, it's definitely on Amazon. Um, it's in real, <laughs> real actual bookshops. Just Google as well. it. Yeah, yeah, it's in real actual bookshops as well. I know it's in Smiths and Waterstones and Backwells and that sort of thing. Um, so pretty easy to get hold of. Just Google Charles Leclerc, Adam Haynickel's biography. Um, and um do you think he needs to leave ferrari <laughs> do i think he needs to leave ferrari um uh, yeah if he I wants mean, to win a world championship yeah um i mean i don't know that that's necessarily a good idea i would i would wait it out um because he's in you know he's in he's in potentially a really good position at ferrari if they can get it together um you know he's sort of the chosen one there and they, mm. they i mean they love him they they view him if you, if you see, even though he's only 25, he has extraordinary leadership abilities. And that's why they talk about him in the same breath as um, Ascari and Lauda and Schumacher and, um, you know, people like that. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I wouldn't be in a hurry to leave um, just because, um, you know, what he's been there for four seasons. Like four seasons? Yeah, four seasons. And, um, and you know, in two of those years, he's had a duff car. Um, but I would, I would, I would ride it out, and I would. Um, I think he should stick around to see what what twenty six twenty twenty six brings when they bring in the new engine regs, um, and let you know Fred Vasseur um, establish himself there. You know, because um, it takes several years, obviously, when a new team principal comes in to get their new hires in and all the rest of it, which is very much what Otmar has been saying um, in the last week about you know why Alpine were wrong to get rid of him, and he's right. Um, so you need to give a new team principal, I think, at least four seasons. And um, Charles and um, and Fred are very, very close. You know, they're almost like father and son. Um, they've been together since since karting when he was racing for ART and karting. And I and I think that uh, Charles is is very loyal to him. I don't see him walking out the door anytime soon, unless you know. I mean, what are the options? He goes to Mercedes, who aren't any faster at the moment. You know, nobody underestimates them, but. There's no guarantee there's going to be a better car. Best car, obviously, is the Red Bull, but would it be a good career move for him to be in Verstappen's team, which it very much is? I'm not so sure. So I think Ferrari is the best option. Um, and, but the onus is, I mean, it's going to require a lot of hard work, and he's up for that. A very short interruption to this conversation with Adam, just to remind you about Paul Oz, our show sponsor. Head to pauloz.com and have a look at his work. You can see him all over social media. He's done some of the most important and incredible um, Formula One related sculptures and paintings of recent time. He's just released a sculpture. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Of James Hunt, um, which I was lucky enough to see down at the, um, the MTC, the McLaren Technology Center recently. It's beautiful stuff, but you can buy his paintings and his sculptures now. Have a look at PaulOz.com. We've actually just given away one of his um, Senna original paintings um, through a competition we ran on social media. I'm sure we'll be doing more of those. Go and have a look. Massive, massive thanks to Paul. Honestly, without the help of sponsors, this show just wouldn't happen. Um, it wouldn't exist. It's so, so important that we have partners like Paul supporting us, helping us to keep going. Thank you, Paul. Right, back to Adam. Let's hear a little bit about his cars. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, Adam, you're a, you're a man who likes a nice car. Mm. You're lucky enough to have driven several nice cars. What are you cruising around in at the moment? I'm, I sort of picture you in a in a Rolls Royce, like <laughs> a drop top Rolls Royce, or something along those lines. Well, not far off. I mean, my um, my car, my daily driver, is um, a Bentley Continental R um, with a hard top, which I think is much okay. more rakish. Um, so yeah, you're on the right lines. Um, it's a proper old school gentleman's express. My car's 1997, but it definitely has a 70s heart and a 1950s what? engine. But it's bloody good. What was it. your first car? A Peugeot 205. What was my second car? A Bentley <laughs> Continental R. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Oh my god! <laughs> so that is that is a ridiculous yeah. transition—a yeah. a Peugeot two hundred and five to a Bentley. I mean, That's what goals. the hell are you going to go to after this? Goals. How do you, how I mean, do you improve? I mean, I on should a, explain that in between, Bentley. I lived in Paris for about ten years, and um, and in Paris, you really don't want to own a car because either somebody will take the bumpers off it, or worse, they'll set fire to it. So um, yeah, I just rode the metro, um, and um, anyway, and that um, I'm in London now. I mean, it's a city car to own. I park it on the street. You know, I get done for you, Les. But it is, um, it's, it's well worth it. It's, it's bloody exceptional. Love that car. <laughs> what, I, I suppose you obviously drive a lot of cars anyway mm. in your job. Um, what, what's, uh, what's the best car and what's the worst car you've driven? Ooh. Um, well, so in terms of the best cars that I've driven, um, I mean, I've driven pretty much all the Ferraris and, um, I've always had a, a soft spot for the F12. That was good. Um, the new 296 is also really, really good. I mean, the Ferraris are mm. all good. Um, and then I love classic cars. And I recently um, did the Mille Miglia in a 1954 300SL Gullwing. Oh. God, that was brilliant. Loved it. And I, I also drove um, Tim, Bur uh, Tim Birkin's uh, 1929 um, uh, team car number two Bentley uh, blower. That was magical. I love that. Um, and then in terms of worst cars, I haven't really... I mean, you know, even the worst cars are pretty interesting. I mean, I recently drove um, a Fisker Ocean, which is um, um, an electric SUV, which is you know, very good in some ways, but 
absolutely narcoleptic to drive. I mean, I, I nearly, I mean, I nearly fell asleep at the wheel so many times. Um, <laughs> I mean, they asked me oh afterwards, um, so how was it? They, they asked me afterwards, the engineers, so how did you find it? And I described it as soporific. And, um, and they looked at me and said, do you mean that? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't add anything else. So they weren't really sure if it was a criticism or not. Maybe they just thought, oh, yeah. I, I thought it was really comfortable. <laughs> I'm I'm in that camp. I've got a uh, I've got an Audi e-tron, so an electric SUV, which it, it's very very comfortable, very nice to drive. But you're right, you you could easily fall asleep at the wheel um, with with the uh, you know the slight um, boring nature of these kinds of vehicles. But the, the but its performance is good. I mean, it's quick for a two and a half ton car. It really shifts. It's not slow, but. Yeah, but they're um, like lights. Your, your Bentley's you go, but then obviously it's got a huge amount of weight, and then the corners are just boring. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'll tell you what yeah. the most fun electric car or electric vehicle I've driven is by far. So you know the light car company who make um, these brilliantly detailed, uh, I think they're 75% scale cars. They did um, a Type 3. Oh, yeah. Jackson. Yeah, yeah. They did the um, Aston Martin DB5 convertible. They did um, the uh, Ferrari Testarossa, you know, like the 1950s one. And I went up to Bista Heritage recently yeah. to have a look around, and I drove them all. And my God, they are so much fun. Um, and yes, they're very expensive toys, but they're not really for children. And uh, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, they are really, really cool. And I ju- yeah. they just announced that um, they're bringing out, because I do like my pre-war Bentleys, they're bringing out... Um, a four and a half litre blower, um, 80, 80% scale, 85% scale, 85% scale, I think. So this thing is huge. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's the yeah. size of a regular car, right? And unlike all the other ones, it's going to be road legal. So you can drive, well, I mean, it's like the perfect pub car, isn't it? So I am all yeah. set to um, go and drive this car. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. I can't wait. Um, yeah, I, I mean, oh, you that's know, awesome. I mean, it costs um, probably as much as a Porsche 911, but cool, right? <laughs> you know a lot about cars. We, Harry and I, I think it's safe to say we don't know an awful lot, do we? We're not, we're not car experts. We know our most. But, I mean, speak we drive for a cash your, car. Speak for yourself. I, I'm, you know, you do drive the world's most boring car. No, I, I'm sorry, that was but, what, it was what car car of the year? Nothing wrong with a cash car. <laughs> Thank you very much. Nothing, especially when he, especially when you didn't pay for it. <laughs> fair i want adam to critique my cars so so i've had over the years the best car i've ever had i'm and i'm not a car man but i did enjoy this so i had i had two cars that i really liked one was i had a a clio cup 172 a 2001 version and i had a 2004 facelift honda s2000 which my mates absolutely ridiculed me for but I thought it was a really cool car. They were like, "There's a hairdresser's car. What are you doing prancing around in that? What do you make of those two choices? I think they're both very, very good to- choices. I mean, also, the thing with the Honda S2000 is, um, like, usually Japanese cars date very quickly, and that car still looks fresh, you know, like a quarter of a century yeah. later. Isn't that amazing? Um, yeah, that's a very, very cool car. And I think it was also, like, the first... The first car I can remember, or certainly the first affordable car that actually had a red start button. Um, yeah, and and also like the the the, um, the cabin. You remember it was very very minimal and driver focused. Yeah, that was that was a really cool car. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the Clio as well. I mean, you know, that was when the French built proper hot hatches. 
Um, Velvet yeah, lovely cars. Do you want to review Harry's Qashqai? Well, I had a Ford Fiesta before that <laughs> as well. So both very good cars. Oh, what kind of Fiesta? What year was the Fiesta? Uh, it was brand new. When did I get it? It was 20... I got it when I was in school. Sixth form. So that was 2015. 2015. Uh, Ford Fiesta in red. Oh one point. Now, if you turned around and said I had a 1982 Fiesta, I would have had enormous respect for <laughs> yeah, that. I no. recently drove... Was it? Uh, oh, yeah. I drove a Mark 1 Fiesta recently that actually belongs to Ford. Like, they have a heritage oh, okay. collection. And um, I took it out. It was the colour of a hearing aid. And it was the most fantastic car. I absolutely loved it. 1.1, you know, as, as, as light as a feather. Fantastic fun to drive. And also, because my great-aunt Margaret had one. And... Um, and it had that very distinct smell from the exhaust. And it was like stepping back in time 30 years. Yeah, I loved that car. That was really great. But, you know, I, I mean, actually, so Fiesta's like the last ST was really good. That was a great car. Mm. I like Fiesta. It's a shame they're canning them, I think. It's a real shame. Yeah, it's a huge shame. It's absolutely ridiculous. I, I mean, I don't know, just getting rid of these names. But then, you know, but then they got all right. It's the, pu- got, it's they the Puma, the isn't Cortina it? And all the rest. Well, the Puma's come back yeah. as uh, an SUV, hasn't it? Yeah. I thought that was what um, they were sort I don't of know. I liked, I liked the, Fiesta the, uh, with the 90s one, you know, with the, with the Steve McQueen ad. That was cool. Yeah, you remember when they ripped <laughs> oh, off yeah. Bullet? It was really clever at the time. That was one of the most high-budget adverts that had been made in uh, you know, 1997 or whatever it was. Well, clearly Ford coming back into Formula 1 has meant some things have had to be sacrificed, and clearly the Fiesta is one of those <laughs> things. Uh, well, <laughs> you you mentioned... They made a wrong decision there, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you mentioned at the start, you know, with um, with Leclerc and wanting to stick around with Ferrari till twenty twenty six. What what do you make of the current landscape in Formula One and the future uh, it, that holds for it? Obviously, it's a bit Max Verstappen dominated at the moment, but we've had domination before, and we'll probably have it again. Yeah, um, I mean, you could argue that we're living in a golden era where he's just, you know, he's the most dominant driver and the most dominant team that we've ever seen. And we should, uh, we should savor that. And um, probably in, in, in a decade, we probably will look at that in the same way that we look back at the Schumacher era at Ferrari. But um, I, I do find it a bit boring at the moment. I also think there are too many races because, um, you know, you want to build anticipation. And, um, and I think, you know, about 18 races a year is about right. And um, I actually mm. quite like the sprints and everything, but, you know, again, there's an argument that's, it's just sort of all a bit too much. Um, so I, I, I'd rather sort of fewer races. Um, and um, and obviously we want to see, you know, um, multiple drivers and ideally two or three teams fighting for the championship. Um, let's see what happens. Um, I mean, the thing is that we all thought it might close up a bit this year and the opposite has happened. Um, so Well, behind yeah, Max... Mm, it's yeah. pretty good. You've just got I to think. you've got to take Max out the equation. Just get get rid of Verstappen, and you've actually got a really competitive championship. It's just him ruining things up front. You just got to look from second mm. back, and you're laughing. Yeah, I think David uh, Crofty, David Croft was saying the other day something that I thought was was quite um, um, quite uh, savvy, which was um, you know that uh, that Perez sort of ruined himself, sort of Miami-ish time when he. When he was within about six points of um, Max, and he started to think, yeah. "Oh, I could win this championship," and then he got absolutely ruined, and that's why yeah. uh, his whole mentality has been broken. Um, but uh, yeah, um, but there are yeah, mm. you're quite right. There are some interesting things happening down the, uh, the pit lane. McLaren 
coming back, that's great. And I really hope that Aston Martin can sort of find some of the form that they had at the start of the season. Because if if nothing else this year, I want to see Alonso win a thirty third Grand Prix. God yeah, man, absolutely, good. absolutely. Um, Adam, what what does the motorsport or, or particularly the journalistic aspect of motorsport? What does that landscape? look like for you at the moment presumably you know since 2005 since you started in this game formula one has moved on but the the whole media and uh, social media and journalistic world has changed how have you coped with that do you mind the way journalism has gone there seems to be writers everywhere now you know whether it be on social media or on websites or you know in the press how have you adapted to that do you like the way it's going um, I mean, I've adapted in terms of, you know, do, doing broader things and doing different things. I mean, I, to, to be honest, I um, although I have my column in the Metro and I still go to the odd race and things, I um, I sort of found uh, after a decade of um, being in the paddock and covering F1 that everybody was basically doing the same thing, writing the same thing, covering the same stuff. And, um, and, and the paddock wasn't really open to doing things that were a bit different. I mean, I did... Uh, oh, over a decade ago now, about 2011 or 12, I brought Vogue um, Vogue magazine to a race um, with a crew when we shot the cover on 34 pages. Um, so I coordinated and produced the shoot. And the, the results were absolutely spectacular. Um, but at the time, um, the paddock, which of course was, you know, it was owned by Bernie at the time, and um, Nobody was very, very keen on reaching new audiences like that and doing something a bit different. I'm sure that if I tried to do it now, it'd be very different and they'd welcome me with open arms. But I literally had to put my balls on the line to get eight passes for a supermodel and a photographer and a bunch of assistants. I mean, it, was, um, it wasn't easy to do. Um, so I suppose in some ways it's good that the paddocks have opened up a bit and um, you know they are reaching new audiences and they're getting a bit more creative. Um, I mean, I think... For some of the old school lot um, in the uh, in the print press, it's probably a bit of a. I mean, I think they're basically being eased out, to be honest with you. Um, but you know, I mean, the originality pays. You know, I mean, I don't really see the point of doing the same thing as everybody else. So if you can come in and you know come at something with a new angle, um, you know, that's great. And also, you know, Formula One has always taken itself way too seriously. And if it, if the media can or new media can come in and you know pop that bubble a little bit, that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, we'll let you get on with your day shortly, but we do have a final three questions, which we ask all of our guests. And this week, they're brought to us by our show sponsor, Mr. Paul Oz. Head to pauloz.com to check out his amazing art and sculptures. They're absolutely stunning. Uh, We've actually just given away one of his center paintings. Um, There's probably more to come, so keep an eye on our socials for that. Um, Harry, why don't you kick off with number one? Uh, What's got you excited at the moment? Um, Probably that war in Ukraine that I just got back from. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, really, I mean, it was an absolute adrenaline rush. Um, you know, as crazy as that sounds, I don't want to come across as some kind of, you know, like war junkie, but um, it was a almost life changing experience, really. And um, yeah, that got the uh, blood flowing. Yeah, I, I mean, terrible, terrible things are going on there, but um, what a privilege to be there and see it, and meet the people involved. So that definitely got me excited. Did Did you have any close calls while you were out there? I mean, did you Did you see? I know you weren't there for too long. What a, a week or so? Yeah, um, I did, as it happens. <laughs> Um, so I went to this place um, just behind the front line, and um, the night before I got there, a, a missile um, destroyed a school about um, a mile from where I was staying. And then, um, so the following evening when I was there, 
I was with some medics having a barbecue and the air raid sirens went off and they go off all the time. I mean, nobody really pays attention to them anymore. And then there was this almighty bang and um, everybody sprinted into the, um, into the basement and just sort of stared at the walls for a while and waited for the all clear. And uh, I later found out that it had been a Russian missile, but it had been intercepted. So the big bang was it being taken out of the sky. But uh, yeah, I think that's probably the closest that I've been. I mean, it was about about a mile away. I think that's probably the closest I've been to um, getting a missile in the face. Oof, it's close enough. Yeah, you don't want you don't want it to get yeah. any more uh, any more intimate than that, do you? <laughs> um, the uh, second question for you: How much of your success do you put down to luck and right place, right time, and how much do you put down to sheer hard work and graft? Well, success is definitely a relative thing. Uh-huh. But I certainly had some fun experiences and some, you know, interesting access and opportunities and to go places and meet people and do things. And, um, you know, I've been um, fortunate in that way. But I mean, I don't know that it's been that in terms of, you know, luck. I think it's I think it's probably. um, Yeah, hard work or, you know, I mean, just, um, um, you know, you know, you sort of charm your way into these things. I wouldn't call it bullshitting. you know, you can sort of charm your way into certain opportunities. But, um, uh, you know, I mean, Formula One, um, for example, is a very uh, it's a very nepotistic business. And um, I didn't know anybody when I first decided that I wanted to work in Formula One, which was, I guess, I was about 14 or 15. I still have files of rejection letters um, from F1 teams and all the rest of it um, who weren't interested because um, they didn't know who I was. So, um, and it was actually, um, it was, I mean, originally I was going to go into public relations. That's what my degree's in. Um, but I ended up going into journalism because I just found with writing that it was, it was, um, you know, a bit more honest. It was less bullshit. And it was, um, you know, you can write a piece and you can say, you know, this is what I've done. Do you like it? And if people like it, then, um, you know, you get to, um, you know, make a living out of it. Yeah. Cut out the bullshit. Happier life for sure. Um, final question. What are you scared of? Being keel-hauled. Don't ask why. I don't uh, know. Okay. That's, I'm not really scared of many things, but for whatever reason, I've always... Well, hang on. What the hell is that? Being... So it's basically... Um, it's what something. It's a, it's a punishment that um, they used to exact in sort of, um, I don't know, like a long time ago. Pirates and, you know, superheroes <laughs> and that sort of thing. But basically, they would sort of tie a rope to your, to your hands and your legs and they would drag you... Um, along the sort of barnacle screen oh, hull of a Game of yeah. Thrones style. Yeah, exactly. So basically, you end up at the end of it, you've either drowned or you've had your back completely cut up and, you know, full of salt and not very pleasant. So, for whatever reason, I've always thought, yeah, keel hauling would be probably the worst way to <laughs> well, go. Well, if, if you don't pay your ULEs, then you better be careful because that could yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, I would personally like to uh, keel haul Steep Calm, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, single-handedly the best answer we've had to that question. So thank you for not saying spiders. Um, very good. Now, Adam, it's been an absolute pleasure yeah. talking no, to you. No, I don't care. Actually, I'll tell you where I was, because um, I was covering um, Extreme E uh, during the first couple of seasons of that. Great fun. Loved Extreme E. And I mainly liked it because of the locations. Mm. Went to amazing, adventurous locations like yeah. Greenland and Senegal. And, um, and I came back um, to my hotel room uh, one night in Uruguay to find an enormous tarantula. It was bigger than a baby. Ooh. And the thing was, I just drunk a bottle mm. of wine. So I was actually pretty relaxed about the whole thing. And I basically just literally kicked out the door. Yeah, it was fine. 
No. You won't get the bottle and smashing it with the bottle then. Well, the, the, bottle, the <laughs> bottle had already been um, taken care of and destroyed, let's say. Um, no, no, I, 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 um, I kicked it. Yeah, just kicked just it out kicked the door. No what a hero. Ooh. Oh, yeah. I could leave yeah. a dent in your shoe. Like a football. Yeah, like a football. There you go. <laughs> Ping. Oh dear. Adam, uh, absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, lots of fun and and some great insights and some nice memories from back in the good old days of Formula One when, uh, yeah, the yacht parties were, were a little bit different to how they are now. But um, long may your success continue. I'm sure we'll see you um, in a paddock soon. But for now, Adam Hay-Nichols, thank you for joining us on the Motormouth podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too. So make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumours quicker. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 